Well, good morning. John chapter 20, we can be returning to in our Bibles this morning. We'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 24. As you're turning there, I just wanted to mention, I wonder if you noticed when it was announced about tonight's uh, Amarillo Reformed Fellowship uh, worship service that we will be uh, sitting under preaching regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord, which of course is what we've been spending quite a long time uh, on here recently in, in our body. It's just a, it, it's a very rare blessing, maybe you've experienced that, to, to hear teaching, preaching on a particular passage or concept, and then in quick succession to hear someone else uh, preach on the same concept. That is a very good opportunity, and so I hope you can join us tonight as we, as we are blessed by, by uh, Pastor Jeremy Boothby in that. John 20, uh, this morning we're looking at verses 24 to 28. You see, as you're looking at that text, you see the name Thomas here. We, we come to something this morning that has made a lasting impression on the church in history. Uh, it is such a dramatic scene and event that we have found it depicted, for example, by the art world essentially non-stop going back as early as the 6th century. That's only in terms of what we have found. Uh, it has its own name and as an artistic theme. It's known as the incredulity of St. Thomas. This is a, as a theme in, uh, in a number of fashions, paintings, sculptures. There are several famous plays and poems from the 15th century that describe this event. I say all of this just to make clear this is captured imagination throughout church history. And it's not hard, not hard to understand why that is. It's, it's a highly dramatic moment, but we, it's one that we find as we read it, we find it to be very relatable to us. And in fact, it raises some important questions that we wrestle with throughout our lives at points as believers. This, this experience here between Thomas and our Lord raises questions about the nature of doubt, uh, the nature of faith itself. These are some of the subjects that face us this morning. And I, I would just encourage you, as, as we do every Lord's Day, uh, with the thought that it is our God who has gathered us together like this this morning. He is the one who gathers us every Sunday morning, and he is the one who feeds us very specifically with his word. Which is to say, God has willed that this morning would be a morning that you would get to stop and think carefully about these things in particular, and to be tested against God's word in this particular way. We do well to remember that regularly. He is in the business of answering the prayer of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where David wrote, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We stood just a moment ago for a call to worship because we have not come here casually. We have been called together here as his body, and we're here as an act of obedience and submission to him. And the way that he works in us in this next hour is by bringing our attention to this particular interaction between Jesus and Thomas. We'll look at it over the course of two Sundays. Uh, next week, Bobby, thank you, will be bringing us God's word as I'm traveling this next week. 
Um, and the following week, we'll, we'll come back to this same set of events. This morning, we proceed as far as verse 28. Uh, and we're focusing on the story itself, the, the interaction between them here, uh, in order to understand the confrontation that takes place. And next time, we'll look at verses 29 to 31. Before we go further, let's hear the passage. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, John 20, verses 24 to 28. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll walk through this this morning under three headings. First, we will hear Thomas's criteria. Second, Jesus' criticism. And third, Thomas' conclusion. First, verses 24 and 25, Thomas' criteria. Thomas seems to be, given what we're told of him in the scriptures, a man with a strong and particular personality. His participations in this gospel, this is the third time that he has come up here in our study of John, uh, it has suggested that maybe he was naturally what some of us might call an Eeyore, if you're familiar with the Winnie the Pooh lore. He may be one of those types. Uh, it's long been, been uh, he's been characterized in this way. This is the third time he speaks up. He's spoken twice thus far. He has never shown any kind of disloyalty toward Jesus at all. But his behavior has led to, for example, the following description of him. This is from J.C. Ryle. Quote, he always seems to be one of those desponding, fearful, gloomy-minded Christians who look at the dark side of every subject and condition and can never see a bit of blue sky, who go on their way to heaven with real faith and true grace but are so full of doubts and fears that they are unable to enjoy religion and are a trouble to themselves and all around them." End quote. Certainly we can tell as we come to verse 24 that the crucifixion and death of Jesus has hit Thomas just as hard as it has hit the rest of them. You have to remember as we're coming to him here, he too, like the rest, has devoted every minute of the last three years of his life to this man. He too has been convinced that this is the Redeemer of Israel. But like the rest of them, he too had not understood how those realities would come to fulfillment 
And so, like the rest of them, he had scattered at the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're not told the reason, but it seems meaningful that according to verse 24, when the disciples had gathered together a week prior at this point, it seems meaningful that Thomas had not joined them. It, we don't know the details. Maybe it was unavoidable in some way, but it's not as if he has a job that he had to get to. His life has just been completely turned upside down by what has happened, and yet he's not with them when they gather a week before this. Verses 24 and 25 let us in on what happened between the men after Jesus had appeared to the ten. We read this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, that's the, the literal meaning of his name in Greek, which is Didymus. Didymus is the Greek translation of his name. And we do know that that was a, a, an actual name used then in that time. Uh, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. One thing that is made clear here is they knew how to contact him, didn't they? And they told him collectively that they had seen the Lord and he did not believe them. Now, this is one place where I feel like we need to come to Thomas's defense a little bit. Uh, Thomas, known forever as Doubting Thomas. Uh, and it's not unreasonable that he's been made this example in history. This, after all, is what, uh, what the, the gospel accounts choose to hold him out to us in this example. So that's proper that we associate that. Uh, and as we'll see in a moment, the way that he expresses his unbelief here has its own flavor that is problematic. But before we look at that, let's just acknowledge something. Let's, let's acknowledge what we hear in Luke 24, verses 10 and 11. I'll just read this for you. The women have just spoken to angels who have explained that Christ has risen from the dead. Here's what we read in Luke 24. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. On that day, they all heard eyewitness testimony from people they knew, and none of the apostles believed them. Thomas is not the only one who is struggling with doubts here as personal testimonies start to come in. And there are some differences in the nature of those testimonies. There's the difference, for example, uh, of the common perception of their time between the reliability of testimony from women versus testimony from men. Testimony of women was not valid in, the court, in a court of law in that time, for example. I imagine that tells us something about the way that their reliability was treated then. Um, also, the disciples, as they talk to Thomas, are not claiming to have seen an angelic vision as opposed to what the women have experienced. They're claiming to have seen Christ himself and spoken to him in the flesh. Uh, hearing the claims from the people he heard them from and of the kind that they were did not make it seem any more plausible to Thomas. And so we can acknowledge that. 
But what seems to clearly hold all of them in common is that the event of the resurrection seemed simply unimaginable to them. And as we think of a people in that moment, in that frame of mind, Thomas is not the only one in that group. They were all in that together. Notice, though, what Thomas says to them in verse 25. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Notice that it's the specificity of his criteria that's being pointed out here to us. We're not necessarily told that he was more skeptical than the others had been. It may be that he was. But certainly, if he had been there with them the week before, he would have believed right alongside of the rest of them if he had seen what they had seen when they had seen it. What's emphasized here is the specific demands that Thomas makes. He says that he knows what he will require if he is going to take this claim seriously. He will require nothing less than his own close physical examination of the risen body, if he is to believe. Now, that's what he says to them. I'm fairly sympathetic to many who hear him here, not intending to be so genuine, but just expressing that he thinks, he he finds this absurd, what they're suggesting. It may be that that's what he's articulating, but he responds in this way. He lists out these demands. And it's good for us to notice how specific they are because they are exactly what Jesus responds to this evening when he appears in their midst. Jesus, who was not in the room with them when he gave this criteria to the other disciples. And it's at this point that we should notice the parallel here in what happens. Uh, Jesus comes and stands among them in the very same way that we saw last week. The door is locked. There is no normal means of entry, and yet here he is now, again in their midst. And he greets them in the same way that he did last week. Peace be with you. Immediately giving them a declaration of the peace that comes with him. But on this evening, no sooner does he say that to them generally, that he turns immediately to Thomas personally. And that threefold criteria that Thomas listed out is met with three invitations. The criteria was, verse 25, see his hands, put his finger in the marks, put his hand in the side. Those were the three criteria. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put your hand in my side. Different order, the very same three criteria immediately invited We're not told whether Thomas actually goes and touches Jesus right then. You notice that? It may be that he did. It seems in the other accounts that Jesus very deliberately invites the, the, the disciples then to come and touch uh, his body and to see this. But the emphasis is on how Jesus is meeting these, these requirements and the effect that this whole scene has on Thomas. It seems to me that Jesus' words here as he confronts Thomas are, even if it is an invitation, a genuine invitation to touch, they're less of of an invitation and more of a conviction immediately. More of a, we could almost use the word shaming to Thomas. Just think of the collective picture that he's created here as he stands supernaturally among them. He displays his knowledge of their prior conversation outside of his presence. 
And he calls Thomas on his three insistences. This is quite a moment in the life of Thomas, the disciple. It's worth reminding ourselves of some of the things Thomas has personally experienced as he has lived with Jesus these three years. Thomas has been there for essentially all of Christ's miracles. He had been there when it was spelled out to the disciples in Mark, 3, Mark 9, 31. I will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill me and I will rise three days later. He'd been there for that. He had gone with Jesus to the tomb of Lazarus, uh, voicing his expectation that they were all going to be killed in this negative way that he was expecting, only to not just be kept safe, but to witness resurrection as Lazarus is called from that tomb. And through all of this, what posture has Thomas managed to maintain? What kind of personality flaws have managed to continue to dominate and lead Thomas in his thinking and his reacting? Jesus names it there in verse 27. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, the weakness with translating it like that is that it does not reflect well at all what's a pretty unusual phrasing that Jesus gives here. What Jesus says to him is, do not be, and then he gives two adjectives, apistos and pistos. Do not be unfaithful, but faithful. Or do not be unbelieving, but believing. What does he mean? Now, remember, it's just as true of Thomas as it is of the rest of the disciples. We've seen it over and over again. Jesus has confirmed and celebrated the genuineness of their saving faith in him on multiple occasions. This is not Jesus calling an unbeliever to saving faith here as he says this to Thomas. He's describing Thomas. Thomas, stop being like this. Enough with this skeptical, doubting posture toward me. This skeptical temperament. It is time to come to rest in what you know by faith to be true. Several times Jesus criticizes the people of that generation for their demands for signs. But it's, we have to understand that correctly because asking a prophet claiming to speak from God for a sign is what God had commanded them to do in the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, this expectation is made clear. A prophet had to demonstrate his genuineness, in part by showing a sign. What Jesus criticizes his generation for is that regardless of all the signs he shows, they always require one more. One more. The conclusion is never drawn. And when someone acts like that, at these displays, what's being, dis what's being revealed is something of a posture, even really a self-worshipful posture or a self-enthronement. Let me just remind you what we heard in John 10. Do you remember this? John 10, starting in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He says, my sheep listen to me. They hear my voice, and they recognize in it safety and authority, and they follow me. I don't say this to suggest, again, that Thomas does not belong to Jesus, but rather that in this case, he has continued to hold on to a natural attitude that displays a lack of faith, a lack of confidence in God, in the power and working of God. Jesus says here to Thomas, it's time to stop this. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And some of this, maybe a lot of it, involves the conviction to move past even the singular event that's being witnessed and to draw conclusions. That matches his condemnation of the crowds who sought for signs, were given signs, marveled at those signs, knew that they happened and that they were real, but what did they not do? They drew no conclusions about what this must mean if this has just happened, who this must be if he just did the things he did and is saying the things he's saying. And we all know this temptation very well. It's a failure of a particular kind that we all in here can sympathize with very easily. God provides for me in a, in a remarkable way, maybe a particularly difficult circumstance, a time of deep need. I cry out. And he provides. And I thank him. And I give him the credit legitimately for rescuing me. But I don't move past that in that moment and draw the conclusion that if he can do this here, that means he is always my great provider. It means he is always seeing and near. It doesn't just mean he felt like being good to me today. It means he is good. I don't do that in that instance deliberately, consciously. And so after all that, I go to bed, I wake up tomorrow, another circumstance arrives, and I am right back in that place of worry and fear. What's going to happen? Who's going to take care of me? Is God trustworthy? I wind up uncertain and fearful in those places, again, because God's past faithfulness to me and his past faithfulness demonstrated in the text of Scripture has not led me at that point to a convictionally lived life in that moment and that season. It hasn't pointed me, like it should have, to the big convictions, the big conclusions. If God can control and work in X, what must that mean about God generally? Jesus says to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And with this word of exhortation, again, as we've seen so many times, strikingly simple and to the point, getting at exactly what the problem is. Perfectly timed in Thomas's life. With the receipt of that exhortation, we come then thirdly this morning to Thomas's conclusion. Now, we've just been describing what we, what we need to do. We need to move beyond just the sight that our Lord shows us in a moment 
and conclude the convictional sorts of conclusions that come from those kinds of displays of God's faithfulness, His goodness. And praise be to God, it's exactly what we see Thomas do in this, in this event, in this moment. Thomas, doubting Thomas, is the first in Scripture to make the confession that we read in verse 28. Thomas answered him. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. This is such a high declaration concerning Jesus that liberal scholars have worked very hard to try to argue that it must have somehow been added later to the text. There's no way that somebody would have said, even though the textual record is entirely consistent on this verse, there is no wrestling here in terms of textual criticism about whether this is uh, original. It's not even a debate, and yet there's, there's efforts made to try to question that. Some have even said, well, maybe what Thomas, what we're actually supposed to understand here is that he's so shocked he utters a profanity. Maybe he's, maybe he's taking the Lord's name in vain as he says this and not actually directing it at Jesus. You see the kinds of hoops that will be jumped through to try to not let this be what it very clearly is. As Thomas looks at this Jesus and draws conclusions based on what he has been shown. No, it's none of those things. Thomas is embracing something here, and not just the event itself. Notice that. He's not just marveling and agreeing that the resurrection has taken place. He's drawing conclusions based on that. And I just wonder what kinds of things were going through his head in that moment. What sorts of things God was bringing back to his remembrance, perhaps even then. Was he remembering in that moment Jesus' statement, before Abraham was, I am? Was he remembering all of the places where Jesus identified with the Father such that they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy, this one whom God has now confirmed by raising from the dead? Was he remembering him, tell them, he who has seen me has seen the Father? As the one who said those things stands now vindicated in new resurrection life before him, Thomas' words go far beyond the resurrection to embrace the conclusion that we ought to embrace from that resurrection. And what we're seeing here as Thomas makes this declaration is just one more piece of the Father's mission for the Son being accomplished. We had read in John 5.22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Here we go. Jesus is receiving the honor that is due Him. And one of the most, I mean, significant silences in all of Scripture as this declaration of worship comes from Thomas, my Lord, my God, Jesus does not rebuke him or correct him. In fact, as we'll see next time, he goes on to praise this belief that he is demonstrating, and he says, blessed are those who believe in this way, even without having seen me. So there is even a verbal affirmation, but what he does not do in any way is offer any sort of rebuke or correction and that's so powerful given similar types of instances that we see elsewhere in Scripture. Let me just share three examples with you 
And let's compare them with what we find here in Jesus' response to Thomas. First one's in the book of Acts, Acts 10.25. A Gentile named Cornelius has been given a vision in which an angel sends him to go meet Peter and listen to him. And it's pretty clear from all of these examples that to, to come in the presence of an angel and be spoken to is quite an impressive moment. Acts 10.25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. This is the immediate response from Peter. The other two examples both come from the book of Revelation and the apostle who's writing this gospel that we're studying. Revelation 19.9, the apostle John is overwhelmed as he encounters an angelic interaction. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the the true words of God. Verse 10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. What do you know? Revelation 22, it happens again to him, assuming he's recounting a second event. Revelation 22, 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Quick, immediate, urgent responses as men seek to bow down and worship. Thomas declares Jesus to be his God, and Jesus does not rebuke him. And again, we'll look more closely at that in the weeks to come. But keep keep looking at verse 28 here in our text, and don't overlook some of the details in what he says here. Very simply, that he says here, but profoundly. Don't overlook, for example, that he declares Jesus not only to be God, but to be Lord. Which is to say, Jesus is not merely God in a detached or hypothetical way. The God of Scripture, the triune God of the Bible, is not the God of the deist, disconnected from his creation, uncaring about the lives, actions, and allegiances of those whom he has made. He is Lord over all of creation. We need to notice this declaration. And as if to make the point even further, Thomas doesn't simply declare Jesus to be the Lord and God. Does he? He declares what? My Lord and my God. This Jesus is the one to whom all mankind is going to give an account. And the many sermons recorded in the book of Acts, it's very interesting, are deliberate to describe that very reality. Acts chapter 2, Peter's first sermon. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Christ, Messiah, Savior, he is Savior, he is Lord. And you all need to know that this one has been declared to be Lord 
over all that has been made. Acts 3, Peter's second sermon, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet <coughs> shall be destroyed from the people. The same warning of the accountability before this one and the accountability that reaches to the individual level. Every soul who does not listen to that one shall be destroyed. Or Acts 17, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill to the Gentiles. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the one that stands before Thomas. And Thomas at last has seen what he has needed to be shown to draw the conclusions appropriate to the revelation God has given us in his Son, my Lord and my God. My friends, can you see how useful is Thomas's example for us to see? We have heard him issue God an ultimatum, the criteria that need be met if he, the great Thomas, is to be persuaded. And we've seen how it turned out for Thomas. And incidentally, think of what actually did turn out in that way. Thomas then, not blasted into a pile of dust, but greeted with words of peace and responded to gently in exactly the way that he needed and yet with gentleness. There is this gentleness, and yet the very sight itself of Christ as the risen Lord served a rebuking purpose to him, didn't it? He in particular in this way, whose natural tendencies of negativity and gloom were too accustomed to being embraced and lived in rather than fought against. It is such a good example for us to have in mind in our time today. It, just because I am born with a certain kind of temperament means nothing about the validation of those things. There are ways I am coming into this world that I need to change, that must be changed in me. And by the power and confrontation of our Lord, we in our natural state are not left to ourselves. We are broken. Our eyes are opened. We're humbled about who we are, and we are led to change. And in that way, then, we see in Thomas an actual example of that kind of change that the work of God in us is capable of. As he didn't just believe the resurrection accounts by what he's seen, but he drew conclusions about who Christ Jesus is. It's a powerful display of what is described as a powerful thing. As we're reminded in God's word that the spirit of God at work in his people as he works to renew us. Romans 8, 11 makes clear he is working in us with the very power 
by which Christ was raised from the dead. That is the power that is at work in God's people as he commits to our sanctification and to our Christ-likeness. There are so many ways that we, the differences among us and the different circumstances in life, there are so many ways that we reveal neediness and imperfection, aren't there? And regardless of what they are, this example serves for us. So whether it be for you on this very particular topic of trusting confidently in the power and lordship of Christ in this world, or whether it be on an altogether different front, let us be reminded this morning that we, as believers, are forgiven children of God in Christ. We really are what Romans 9.23 describes us to be. We are vessels of God's mercy, prepared beforehand for glory. These sorts of exhortations to us, reminders, the example of this morning, these things ought to be producing in us a peace and joy and confidence that is appropriate to the children of God. And so the call to us from God's word this morning is just that. Let us pursue the callings he brings us to with the hope and peace and confidence that are appropriate to those who serve a Lord who has overcome the world. In fact, that chapter that I just referenced, Romans chapter 9, ends quite appropriately with these words. And we'll close with this. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus... Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the same ongoing love and work in us that we have seen Thomas receive that night. Thank you for not leaving us as we are, but instead for pursuing our sanctification until your work in us is finished. We do marvel at the sight of you that we find in your Son, our Lord. Such gentleness, such mercy, such kindness, even as he is so committed to your glory on this earth that he is not ashamed to rebuke and to call us to transformation. God, help us to sense your great kindnesses in our lives and by them to be moved to repentance, to walk ever nearer to you. We know that we only do these things by the power of your spirit at work in us. And so in all of this, we give you the glory. And we ask these things in the name of our Savior. In Jesus' name do we pray. Amen.